You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you um, and uh, to study God's Word together. Uh, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, so uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, I, I hope I'll be able to meet you uh, soon, uh, today, if not today, uh, soon. Uh, we're just glad that you are here with us. I wanted to let you know that w- this, today's just the second uh, Sunday in our study through the book of Acts. And so if last week you were unable to get one of these, we have these out on the table right when you go out. It's just, uh, it's just the book of Acts, uh, but it's not uh, sort of just the text. There's the text of Acts, and then each page next to it is blank so that you could write notes, um, things from your own personal study, your own devotional time, uh, or also you could take sermon notes on this. And then uh, that way, if you bring it each week uh, by the spring or whenever we finish, we'll be in Acts for a while. Uh, whenever we're done, you'll have your own personal notes throughout the whole book, which could be really a great, uh, a great tool for you. Uh, Today, I want to start by just reviewing a little bit of what we talked about last week um, and then jump into what today's passage is, one of the most important passages in the book of Acts, arguably in all the New Testament. It's it's a very key passage uh, in the book. And so as we walk through Acts 2 today, uh, at least the first part of Acts 2, I think the sermon will feel a little different than last week. Last week was a little bit more of an exhortation. Uh, it, it was a sermon that, that had the feel maybe of a little bit of a locker room speech. This will be more of a teaching uh, where I'm just going to walk through this event and sort of uh, teach it, explain it, uh, and that sort of thing. But I trust God will open our eyes uh, to him and that he'll meet us and, and fill us as we study his word. Well, last week we saw at the beginning of Acts that this book is written by Luke. It's a second part of a two-volume work, Luke-Acts. Is, are both written by the same author. Uh, it's two volumes. One, Acts, uh, Luke is the beginning of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is the continuation of all that he began to do and teach through his apostles and what he began to do through his church as well. So the book opens with Jesus teaching uh, the apostles. He's resurrected, and he's teaching them as the resurrected Lord about the kingdom. And uh, then he ascends up to his Father in heaven. Now, Before he ascends, he sort of gives them their mission, renews the call of their mission, and he says to them, look, um, you need to wait. You're not ready for your mission. You need to wait. Hang out here in Jerusalem and wait. It's probably about 10 days. We can do the math from what happens here. I'll explain in a second. So they probably wait around 10 days or so till Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. But he tells them to wait, and they will receive power And when they receive power, they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they are, Judea, the surrounding areas, to Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. And so it's this call where he's saying, the Spirit is going to fall on you, you're going to be empowered, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to start telling people about me, Jesus says, here in Jerusalem, and then the surrounding area, Judea. And then you're going to go beyond that and cross cultural boundaries and reach the Samaritans, which is fairly unthinkable. And then you're going to do the absolute unthinkable. You're going to go to the end of the earth. The gospel is going to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And we're going to find it starts in Jerusalem here among a small group of believers, and it ends in Rome. 
as uh, Paul is taken prisoner to give testimony before Caesar. And what, what is happening throughout the book of Acts and, and the entire New Testament is the spread of the gospel to the known world throughout the Roman Empire. I had to chuckle a little bit about this Roman Empire thing that's happening if you're on TikTok and follow this. There is a viral trend now about the Roman Empire, and, and uh, I'm not on TikTok and found out about this, so even if you're not, you may have known about this because it's reached the broader uh, news media. And so uh, what the videos are are various ladies uh, interviewing a man in their life, could be their husband, their boyfriend, their dad, and they simply ask him on video, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And these ladies are shocked that their husbands or these men actually do think about the Roman Empire, and often more frequently than they would imagine. And I'm sure there's some good actors. I'm sure some of it's fake. But some of it is so realistic that guys are stunned. How do you know? And uh, so guys are saying, I think about the Roman Empire daily. Uh, I think a few times a month about the Roman Empire. Uh, one, one dad I saw told his daughter, I think about the Roman Empire every time I use the restroom because they developed sewage systems, and so I think, I think this happened during the Roman Empire. And so there are guys that are thinking daily about the Roman Empire, and some not thinking nearly as often, and every lady is absolutely stunned, thinking, how, how, did I not, how are you thinking about this, and why are you thinking about this? And so my goal in this series uh, is, is not to join a TikTok trend, but is to help us all think a lot about the Roman Empire. Uh, as we read through the book of Acts, because it is this time that God chose when power was consolidated in a single city, Rome, that ruled over much of the world uh, during a time of peace, that God chose to pour out his spirit upon his church so that the gospel could spread throughout the Roman Empire and so that we today, men and women, could think about the gospel spreading through the Roman Empire on a frequent basis. So we talked about that in the first 11 verses of Acts 1. And then I'm not going to cover the second half. I'm going to do Acts a little differently than I've done some books. There are passages that I'm going to summarize for you, and then other passages going to teach verse by verse. So basically what happens in the rest of chapter 1 after Jesus ascends is that the disciples pick a 12th uh, apostle to replace Judas. Judas commits suicide, uh, and there is another Uh, apostle chosen named Matthias. He's chosen by Lot. And then Acts 2 occurs, and the Spirit, which is promised in Acts 1, arrives. So let's listen as I read together Acts 2, verses 1 to to 11. This is God's holy word, the account of the arrival of the Holy Spirit to the first church. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own 
native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, uh, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So three things I want to look at in this passage. The first is the arrival of the Spirit, which we see in verses 1 through 3. I say arrival. The Spirit was present on the earth, but this is a unique arrival of the Spirit. Might be a better way to say that. Uh, Verses 4 through 11 describe the effects of the Spirit when he comes at Pentecost. And then verses 12 through 13 are the response to the Spirit. So the arrival of the Spirit the effects of the Spirit, and the response to the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost uh, in dramatic fashion. They are all together, verse 1 says, they are all together in one place. Presumably, this is the same group that in chapter 1, verse 15, is called uh, the 120 people. So there's these 120 people, including the apostles, including Jesus' mom, Mary, she is with them. And they are gathered together, and then the Spirit comes. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes here, this is not just an interesting, uh, maybe even peculiar episode. Uh, This is something significant and historical. This is something that is a part of salvation history. This is not just a random sort of miraculous event, but this is part of the history of salvation in the Bible. Salvation history is broken. The story of the Bible is broken into uh, some say four major events. You have creation, then you have the fall, where Adam and Eve sinned. Then you have redemption, starting with Israel, God redeeming people for himself and culminating in the ministry of Jesus. And then you have restoration or sometimes called consummation when Christ returns. So creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now in redemption, uh, that culminates in the work of Christ. And redemption through Christ is several key events. One is the incarnation where God becomes man. Christmas is what we celebrate that represents the incarnation. And then Jesus' life, where he obeys the law uh, for, on our behalf, for us. Uh, then there's his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter. And then we just read last week his ascension. He goes up into heaven to be with the Father. And then the final event is Acts 2. It is his pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. So it's hard to overemphasize Pentecost. This is a massive event. It is a hinge event. And when I say hinge event, I mean this, that it closes sort of Jesus' redemptive work until his return. The next thing Jesus is going to do to fulfill redemption is to return and bring us to himself. But this is the last act before that. He pours out the Holy Spirit. So it's sort of the completion in one level of Christ's redemptive work, but it's also the beginning. So as a hinge, it, is, it, it closes one era in terms of what Christ did on earth, and it opens the sort of new era, the era of the Holy Spirit, where the church is on mission to take the gospel to the world. And God chooses 
Pentecost to be the event where he, he empowers the church, where the church is, comes alive with the gospel. God doesn't act randomly. There's a reason, there may be a number of reasons, why he chose Pentecost to pour out his Holy Spirit. So Pentecost is one of three festivals. The people of Israel gathered three times a year in Jerusalem. At wherever you lived, if you were a Jew, you would go on a pilgrimage and you would go to Jerusalem three times. Take the kids, whatever, everybody's going on a trip, and you'd go and worship at a festival in Jerusalem. The first one is Passover, which celebrates uh, the people of Israel coming out of uh, Egypt, and that's when Jesus was crucified, the week of the Passover. And then 50 days after the Passover is Pentecost. Penta means 50, so it's 50 days after Passover is Pentecost, and it is a celebration of the early harvest. So this is not random. They are there celebrating. It's 50 days-ish after Jesus has died and resurrected, and they are there celebrating the early harvest. And what is so key is that's exactly what is going on, because after the Spirit is poured out, Peter stands up and preaches, we'll see that next week, and 3,000 people are harvested into the kingdom. So the 120 are joined by 3,000 people who become believers, and the church is it's off with a bang, man. It is game on at that point. Things start happening in a powerful and in a radical way. And so there is this harvest festival where God is beginning to harvest. It's the first fruits. He's harvesting the first fruits of his people who will take the gospel to all nations. And when the Spirit comes here, he comes in a dramatic fashion, doesn't he? Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So they're in this room, they're waiting, they know something's going to happen, and they hear what sounds like a windstorm in the room. Why is that? Well, wind is an image or a picture of God and his activity in the Old Testament. Several places. One key place would be in the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 37, he sees a valley of dry bones, and then he sees breath or wind coming into the bones. Now, this is key because the same word for spirit in Hebrew and in Greek, the same word for spirit is also the word for breath or the word for wind. So wind and spirit are the same word. And he sees these bones filled with the breath, the wind of God, and they stand up and are brought back to life. And it's a picture of God's renewing, reviving work by the Spirit. And Ezekiel 37 says, after that event of the dry bones coming to life, uh, it says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And so at Pentecost, God shows up in power and fills the people with his spirit and they are alive in a a new way. They are newly alive for his purposes. It also says that not only is there a sound like wind, but there's also this sight of fire, verse 3. There are divided tongues. When it says divided tongues, think of a tongue like a flame. Think of a flame. There are these divided tongues tongues of fire that appear to them and rest on each of them. So they see this fire, and then these flames appear and and rest. Somehow there's like a flame that appears to be on each person. Well, fire is obviously another image of God in the Old Testament. Remember in the book of Exodus, when Moses is uh, out in the field, and there is a burning bush that burns but is not consumed, and God speaks 
that fire, that, that, that fire that's not consumed is a, is, is a picture of God speaking to uh, Moses. So it's a sign of God's presence. So at Acts 2, we have these various Old Testament images and this sense of fulfillment that the long-anticipated arrival of the Spirit has come. And he comes in dramatic fashion. He comes with the sound of a wind, with the sight of fire, to fill his followers so that they can, chapter 1, verse 8, be his witnesses. They cannot fulfill their mission without the power of the Spirit because the mission to take the gospel to the lost is a supernatural mission that can only be accomplished by supernatural means, and so he pours out his Spirit. So that's the arrival of the Spirit. The second thing is the effects of the Spirit. We see this in verse 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what happens here is these 120 people began to speak languages they do not know. Verse 4 says, as the Spirit gives them utterance. So the Spirit gives them these words in other languages. And they are, verse 11 tells us, declaring the mighty acts of God. They are de- declaring, they are telling They are speaking the mighty acts of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a relationship between the ministry of the Holy Spirit and and inspired speech. So in the Old Testament, the way it works is uh, when the Spirit empowers someone, they would often prophesy. So the prophets have encounters with the Spirit, and God speaks to them. So the idea of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, sort of empowering speech is not unusual in the Bible. What's unusual and unprecedented is that that speech be in languages that the speakers do not know. They do not cognitively know these languages, and yet they are speaking in them. That's what is new. Uh, As there are, verse 5 says, people from every nation under heaven. So there is... um, there are people there that are hearing these languages in their home language. So they come from another nation, they're Jewish, they come on pilgrimage and they hear somebody speaking, whoa, that's what we, that's what we speak back in Crete uh, and that's what's going on here. That's what we speak back um, you know, in Cappadocia, that's our language, and they are speaking it. So the scattered Jewish people have gathered at Pentecost And these people start speaking in a language they don't know, and somehow this goes viral. I don't know if they leave the house. It's making so much of a racket. We don't know. But people gather, a crowd gathers, and they begin to hear them speaking the language of their land uh, as the believers are experiencing uh, this Holy Spirit's power, and they're speaking other languages. Now, it's no surprise in verse, uh, verse 7, it says that those who hear this were amazed. As they heard them speak their own language, they are amazed, they are astonished, saying, are not these speakers Galileans? It's shocking because Galileans have a reputation of being uncultured. They're hayseeds, okay? They're, they're sort of uncultured sort of people. And now they're doing something. This, this is not a gathering of linguists. You know, this isn't, a, this isn't a conference on foreign language. These are uncultured kind of people. And they are standing up, speaking perfectly languages that they could not know. And the people are amazed to hear this. 
And, and the tongues miracle is even more amazing when you really look at the list and think about who is there. So it's not as if they all stood up and they spoke just like, what's, you know, one area over, they all spoke that language, and everybody goes, wow, that's interesting. Aren't they from Galilee? No, they're speaking broadly um, languages represented by the known world at that time in the Roman Empire. Um, it, it tells us in verse 9, there are Parthians, Medes, and Elamites there. Th- those people are from the east of the Roman Empire, an area that today would be known as Iran. So people, the Iranians are there, various people there that speak different languages, and they're hearing it in their language. It also says, he says next, residents of Mesopotamia. That's modern-day Iraq. So the Iraqis are there, and they are hearing it spoken in their language. We weren't called the Iraqis, and it was different. They're called the people of Mesopotamia, but they're hearing it. And then he says Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. That's modern-day Turkey. So people who live these various groups in modern-day Turkey, they are in Jerusalem as well. And what's interesting is those areas, Paul is going to evangelize those areas in Acts 13 through 20. We'll get to that. So uh, chapters 13 through 20. Then he moves to Africa. There are Africans there, North Africa, people from Egypt, parts of Libya, uh, parts, uh, people near Cyrene, it says. There also in verse 10 is a mention of people in Rome, which is so interesting. People from Rome are hearing it, and then by the end of the book, when Paul is in Rome, there's a full-blown church there, and they're going to come out and meet with Paul. And uh, So there's people from Rome there that are Christians before Paul is, and uh, he will meet them at the end of the book, presumably. There are people from Crete and the Arabians. That probably is the area today of Saudi Arabia. So there's this international spontaneous assembly that comes and witnesses this incredible miracle. Now, with all due respect and fear of the Lord, I would say this is odd. This is peculiar. I mean, if you, if you were thinking, hey, God's going to come and pour out his spirit to reach a lot of people with the gospel, how's he going to do that? I don't think anybody in the room would have guessed, well, he's going to give them languages they don't know, and they're going to start speaking in foreign languages, and everybody's going to hear that. It's unusual. So why does this happen? Well, I think it's because it's a picture of uniting diverse people all over the world together in Christ. Because what happens is immediately after this, Paul preach, and Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are, uh, are, are saved. And so it is this uniting. People are converted from different nations from the very beginning, and they are united with the 120 who are already believers as the foundation of the church. We looked at this a number of weeks ago, that the uniting of people around Jesus is a reversal of a dividing that happened early in the story of the Bible. Early in the story of the Bible, there are people who have one language. This is Genesis 11. They have one language, and they say, hey, we can do anything. Let's build a tower all the way up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. Let's build this all the way up into heaven and make a name for ourselves. And so there's this proud group of people with one language who are going to do this incredible feat, and God judges them for their pride. He scrambles their language, gives them different languages so they can't understand one another, and then they scatter to various parts of the world. And this is how languages, people, different languages were separated from the beginning of time, according to the scripture. And so what's happening here is that people with different languages, that that judgment 
for their pride is sort of being reversed. And it's not the pride of man that is separated. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that is now uniting people together in Christ. It's an amazing thing to see that they're going to unite. These are all Jews, but they're going to unite around Jesus, those who believe. And then the Samaritans are, and then the Gentiles are, people all over the world. Pentecost represents the launching of Christ's global mission. And here's how it will end. It starts here with them going out to speak. Well, Jesus has already been on earth and and preaching the kingdom for sure. But now the church is birthed and is going out and taking the message to all nations. This is from the very beginning. And it ends with Revelation 7 with people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue before God worshiping him. And so the reason I point this out is this is so important. We often just look through a, a, a North American, through a U.S. lens. You know, we think, hey, we're to go to the end of the earth, not realizing we're the end of the earth. We're the Gentiles who are just like really blessed to have a seat at the table, but we're so centric on ourselves, aren't we? So we view all those people out there as the end of the earth. We sort of think almost like, well, Christianity is somehow inherent or native to us. Not true at all. You got people from the Middle East. You got people from Africa. They were way onto this thing before any of us were, okay? Uh, So you've got people from all over the world hearing the gospel. And the point is that reaching the nations with the gospel, it's in the very DNA of our mission as a church. It's in the very DNA. It happens from the beginning. It happens. God could not make a stronger statement that I want the message of God translated to people all over the world, and that's how he births the church. And it's sad to say that many of us probably have never really thought about that much, this gathering of nations uh, and this, this, this work of empowering them, the first believers, to reach them and to take the gospel to the world. So it's not as if we in the U.S. sort of own the gospel, and now we're going to all those needy people all over the world. No, it started in the Middle East. We are those needy people from all over the world. We're the end of the earth, the Gentiles. God reached us, and now he does call us from where we are in our perspective with our blessings and all that we have to take those and take them across the street to our neighbor or across the globe where we can uh, share the gospel with others. So the international nature of the people of God, the global reach of the gospel is in our DNA because you see it at the birth of the church. Well, this unusual event, I'm gonna take a few minutes on this, raises a lot of questions for people today. And we have whole differences and divisions and denominations. I mean, we have Pentecostal Christians and they're named after this event, right? Uh, So we we have uh, all kinds of questions about this. Here's one question that's commonly asked. Is Pentecost Acts 2 here, is it unique or should we experience, should we expect to experience similar experiences today? Is this a one-off event? I mentioned it's part of salvation history. So is this uh, a unique event or is this something that we should expect to see happen and to experience today? That's a great, great question. Well, My answer to that is yes, it is unique, and yes, we should expect to experience the Spirit's power uh, in, in related ways, maybe not identical, but related ways today. It's unique in this sense. It's the final event of Christ's redemption prior to his return, 
And so there will never be another Pentecost which initiates the era of the Spirit among God's people. We live, uh, the, the, the Bible is really divided in uh, two ages, this age and the age to come. And so this age at the, at the pouring out of the Spirit becomes the age of the Spirit. So yes, it is unique, and yes, it is non-repeatable in one sense because it, it, it's, it's something that is historic on God's timeline that changes everything. But in another way, as I mentioned, it's a hen's event. It's not just completing the redemptive work of Christ prior to his return, but it also is launching the church in mission. And so the reality is we today need the power of the Spirit. The mission of the church is ongoingly dependent upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a one-time situation in that. We need the Holy Spirit, and and there's not this one-time event at Pentecost that you were either there or now you just get to read about it in, in a history book the book of Acts. But this is a, a reality for us today to be filled with the Spirit. And the reason I would say being filled with the Spirit is repeatable is because this very act is repeatable within the first four chapters of the book. So look at verse, verse 4. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if that was a one-time historic event never to happen again, we wouldn't expect to see that language repeated, correct? But look what happens in Acts 4. In Acts 4, verses 8 and 9, Peter is called before the authorities and told not to speak in Jesus' name. And this is what it says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So he's defending the fact that God healed a crippled man that they prayed for. And so, but, but to stand up in confidence and boldness when he is... Uh, under authorities that could uh, jail him, and ultimately that does happen. But when he's before the authorities, he, he speaks, and he's filled with the Spirit. So the language of Pentecost, that event, something happened at Pentecost that then happens again in Peter two chapters later. And in our Western mind, we think, well, something that is filled can't be filled again, but, but this is a metaphor, I mean, it's not that, like you get a quantity of the Holy Spirit, like, you know, what's your body weight? Well, you're filled that much with the Holy Spirit. We, it's a metaphor. We, we think in quantitative terms or something like that. No, he's filled and empowered. And guess what? He needs it again in chapter 4 because it hasn't happened. No, it has happened. But he needs the Spirit's filling again. So he later joins a prayer meeting in Acts 4, verse 31. This is what we read. And when they had prayed at this prayer meeting, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. These are the same people from Acts 2. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here they're praying. Uh, The persecution has now started against Christians in a pronounced way. And they are praying, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. What is my point? Pentecost is unique as an event in salvation history where God is doing something, inaugurating the age of the Spirit, that we are people of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, the church. But he's, what he's doing there is also repeatable, and I can't explain why we need to be filled here and why we need to be filled there. I mean, the obvious answer is that we leak, but that would be to press the metaphor too much probably. But I think Caleb prayed for me. I pray for myself this way. I think he prayed for me today. Fill, fill Craig with the Spirit as he preaches. 
Well, I'm a Christian. Didn't I get the Spirit when I was a Christian? Yes, I got the Spirit when I was a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, Romans 8, 9 says. So, yes, I got the Spirit. But there are times when we are filled again. And oftentimes this could be tied to speaking in various ways for the Lord, witnessing, sharing your testimony. Uh, But all kinds of ways we need to be filled with the Spirit. So we should ask for the Lord to fill us. We should expect the Lord to fill us. To embolden us, as chapters in, happens in chapter 4. They're emboldened to speak the word of God boldly. We should ask God to gift us, to grant us the gifts we need to accomplish his purpose and his ministry. We, we should um, ask for him to powerfully fill us to accomplish whatever he calls us to do. If, if Peter is filled at Acts 2, and he's in this event speaking other languages, and 3,000 people are converted. Wouldn't you think, well, man, he could just coast on that. They could just put that in his oldies catalog, and he can just be a legacy act touring around for the rest of his life based on, I was at Pentecost. But no, he needs to be filled again and again, and we should have that expectation. Not that we don't have the Spirit, but we need the Spirit's power in a new way for a new challenge in our lives today. The second common question is, is this repeatable? I think a second common question is, is speaking in tongues for today? So what happened in Acts 4, he's not speaking in tongues there, right? He's speaking his language uh, boldly. So what about this speaking in tongues? Well, Acts 2, it doesn't talk about that. It just happens. Uh, And there are people who speak in tongues later in the book as well. But it's described but it's not really talked about or taught on. So in other words, the event happens, but it's not all explained. You have to look elsewhere in the New Testament for that. And when you come to the book of 1 Corinthians, you see in 1 Corinthians 12 that speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues are spiritual gifts. Now, this is a whole message, and I'm almost out of time in this sermon, so I am not going to be able to give this justice, but I'm going to make a few comments about it. I think what's happening in Acts 2 and what's happening in 1 Corinthians, the spiritual gift for the church, I think they're similar and yet distinctly different in a number of ways. <clears throat> Here's how they are different. The audience differs. So in Acts 2, what we read happening is that they are speaking to the, foreign, the foreigners, if I can say it that way. They're speaking to the foreigners who are gathered there in a language that they know, as a, to demonstrate a miracle that they are speaking this language. So the recipients of tongues speech in Acts 2, the recipients of hearing the message are, uh, are people who are gathered. Whereas the recipients of tongues speech in 1 Corinthians is God. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, 4 says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up Uh, the church, uh, not the verse I wanted, uh, 14 verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And then the chapter goes on, and and Paul says, I will pray with my spirit in tongues, he says, I'll pray with my understanding. Uh, There's a section in there where it says, if there's no one to interpret, just sit down in church and speak to yourself and to God. So this seems to be some kind of language that is vertical to God, a language that a person doesn't know, a tongue, but is spoken to God. It mirrors prayer. Actually, Paul calls it prayer in 1 Corinthians 14. That doesn't seem to be what's going on 
in Acts chapter 2. Secondly, in Acts 2, the language is known to the hearers. Unknown to the speaker, known to the hearers. In 1 Corinthians, no one in the room knows the language, and that's why it has to be interpreted. Not by someone who knows the language, not to someone who got the Babel app or whatever, got some kind of app and learned a language. No, it's, it's a gift, a spiritual gift of interpretation. That's what it says. There's the gift of tongues, there's the gift of interpretation. So if someone is speaking a language to the Lord publicly, it has to be interpreted, and that is just as much a gift as the speech. So it is, it is uh, not known to the speaker in 1 Corinthians 14. It is not known to the hearers. Acts 2, it's not known to the speaker, but it's known to all the hearers. So something very different is going on. Not evangelism in, in 1 Corinthians 14. The purpose is different as well. And that's probably the final idea, that Pentecost is used to, tongues are used to reach the lost by speaking to them miraculously in a language that, that they recognize, but others wouldn't. Whereas the purpose in 1 Corinthians is, I just read 14.4, it's something that edifies the, the speaker or edifies the church. If there's interpretation, it builds up the church. If it's private and it's not public, then it builds up the speaker, uh, is what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 14. So that's not what's going on in Acts 2. This is not building up the speaker or the church. It's clearly mission evangelism. So I think there's something distinctly different, even though the same language is used happening in both situations. Can Acts 2 happen today? I've heard anecdotes. I've never seen it, uh, never talked to someone who's seen it. But I've heard anecdotes on frontier mission situations where someone has stood up and preached in a language they didn't know, but it was known by the people present and they heard the gospel. That is certainly possible. God can do whatever God chooses to do. So we, I do believe we live in, the, in, the, in, the, in a realm of the miraculous, that God can work miracles today. I've never seen that happen. I think Acts 2, be, that would be a very uncommon way of taking the gospel to people, would be you just walk in and speak a language you don't know to them. I think that would be uncommon. Whereas the 1 Corinthians 14 passage seems to be much more common. It seems like many people in Corinth, they have no character, they're not godly, but they do speak in tongues, and Paul never says they're false. He never says shut them down and put a lid on it. Uh, so they do. It is a gift that appears to be broad in the book of Corinth. And so I think that gift of communicating to God, there's no reason in the New Testament to believe that's not for today. I don't see it shut down in any reason. I don't see that in the text of Scripture. Um, I think the broader picture is that when the Holy Spirit empowers us, he empowers our speech. He gives us boldness. He gives us words to share the gospel. He empowers teaching or preaching. He gives prophetic impressions and words that we can share with others. He gives a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or gifts from 1 Corinthians 12. So he gives us, he gives us the gift of exhortation or encouragement. So the Spirit encourages us to speak his scripture, the word of God to others, or to share things with others that he gives us that encourage and strengthen other people. So the broad picture is the Spirit comes and enables us to speak, and there may be times when that happens in a more dramatic way with speaking in tongues as we're reading here. So that's the effects of the Spirit. Here is the final point, which is, this is super brief, but the response to the Spirit. There's two responses. Some are amazed, some are amused. Uh, pretty clever, huh? Some are amazed, some are amused. I rarely get those kind of things, so I always point them out when I do, which is probably not godly or humble, but there you go. Um, 
And all, verse 12, were amazed and perplexed, and then others were mocking, verse 13. So some people say, tell me more. What does this mean? I'm leaning in. What's happening here? Peter stands up and preaches, and 3,000 of them are converted. Wonderful. Other people mock and say, oh, they're just filled with the new wine, harvested new wine. They've just been drinking, tipping into the wine early in the morning, and they're drunk. The first thing Peter has to say in his sermon I've never had to open a sermon this way. The first thing he says, hey, everybody here's not drunk. So I've never had to begin that way. Um, <clears throat> but he starts the sermon by saying, these people are not drunk. This is what the Old Testament said would happen. This is what Joel prophesied would happen. This is the event we've been waiting for. And the same is true today. Some people hear the gospel. You may be one of them. You hear the message of Jesus Christ, what he's done, and you say, tell me more. You hear about his death, and we, we preach the scripture that there's forgiveness of our sins because of Christ's death, and you say, tell me more. And we say, Christ is resurrected, he's alive. You can experience new life. You can experience the power of the Spirit, and you say, I want that. Tell me more. You're leaning in, and other people say, those folks are crazy. That's just a dream. That's a wish. That's a fairy tale. Those people are just got something missing in their life, and so they create a God, and they all want to believe in him, and and it's just, it's foolishness. Those are really the primary responses. I'm amazed or I'm amused. I, I hope that you are amazed. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I would encourage you just to trust the Lord, to believe that Jesus died for our sins, to give us new life, to renounce any other way. You can't be good enough to be accepted by Christ. You can't be moral enough. You need what he did for you. The gospel is about what God has done, not what you do. And the good news is that he's done everything for us. It's when we receive that gift by faith, when we receive what he's done for us and we believe in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, we have our own Pentecost. It may not be this dramatic, but it's actually, well, it's actually far more dramatic. You go from death to life. You go from darkness to light. The blinders are removed from your eyes. That's what some of us need. The blinders removed from our eyes so that the Holy Spirit opens so that we see what Christ has done for us and we renounce everything else we're pursuing and say, we trust you and you alone. Don't mock what God has done. Don't treat as unholy what the scripture says is holy. Don't say, I've got time for that later. I'll figure that out. No, be amazed at the work of Christ in the cross and resurrection and believe today. And secondly, if you're already a believer, ask the Lord to empower you with his spirit. Now, you're not asking to give me the spirit because I don't have the spirit. You're not saying that. But you're saying, Lord, would you move in a fresh way in my heart? Would you convict me of my sins? Would you encourage me in what Christ has done for me? Would you grant me gifts that you want me to have to encourage and build up the church and to reach the lost? Would you inspire my speech in some way to give me power to share my testimony with someone? Would you, whatever you want for me, would you give me boldness in evangelism? Would you give me the ability to pray to you privately in a tongue that I don't know, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14? Lord, would you fill me? Would you work in a powerful way in my life? I need you. The, 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 the mission that we have as a church cannot be accomplished by intellectual argument. We believe in dealing with the scripture and having sound doctrine and reasonable apologetic explanations, apologetics, 
uh, reason for the truth. We believe in that. But that doesn't convert apart from the Spirit. The Spirit uses that, but it is the Spirit that grants new life. And so we need the power of the Spirit if we're going to be the people God has called us to be. We're going to close today by coming to receive communion. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.